A reading from Luke 19. Jesus went ahead with the ascent to Jerusalem. Approaching Bethphage and Bethany, near what is called the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples with these instructions. Go into the village ahead of you, and upon entering it, you'll find tethered a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it back. And if anyone should ask you, why are you untying it? Say, the rabbi needs it. They departed on their errand and found things just as Jesus had said. As they untied the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you doing that? And they explained that the rabbi needed it. And then the disciples led the animal to Jesus, and laying their cloaks on it, helped him mount. And people spread their cloaks on the roadway as Jesus rode along. As they reached the descent from the Mount of Olives, the entire crowd of disciples joined them and began to rejoice and praise God loudly for the display of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of our God, peace in heaven and, high, and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the very stones would cry out. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. I get the impression that when this gospel was written, the author spent a lot of time on this particular story. Because just about every image points us to something. A scripture reference, a political reference, a subversive jab at something. Every word seems intentionally placed to create a portrait that one could stare at for hours and just begin to get a handle on. Press pause on this moment. This dramatic moment, right as Jesus rides over the summit of the Mount of Olives. And all his disciples burst into song, throwing their robes for his donkey to walk on. Stop it and put a frame around it. In all its splendor, let your eyes explore the scene. In the center, of course, there's Jesus in his tattered clothes, riding on a bewildered, borrowed donkey, his eyes at once kind and resolved. Moving out a little there are the disciples, wide smiles on their faces, flinging their cloaks on the road to prepare the way for their liberating king. And then moving out a bit more down nearer the bottom of the mountain, near the corners of the frame, you'd see the Pharisees, the gatekeepers to the great city and the great religion. 
They are well-dressed. Their arms are crossed. Their eyebrows are furrowed with disapproval at the rowdy display. And upon second glance, a good bit of fear that the Romans might notice, and somehow the Pharisees are going to catch the brunt of it. And then the Romans, at the very edge, eyes on the scene from every angle, almost making up the frame itself. The Roman Empire notices the scene, mostly unfazed, but with a hint of suspicion, wondering whether they care enough to be offended by this mockery of their custom. And as we take in these characters surrounding Jesus from every side, eyes focused on what's going on, there is one thing in particular that stands out to me. No one except the man in the center on the colt at the top of the mountain seems to have any idea what's actually going on. If you look, you can almost see them, the obscuring lenses through which their eyes try to focus on Jesus. Each of them is so totally caught up in their own perception of what's going on, so quick to cast Jesus as a supporting character in their own default, unexamined story, that they fail to touch the true nature of that moment. The reality that that challenges and transcends their stories and perceptions. Everyone from the top of the portrait to the bottom winds up totally missing the point. A wise teacher once said that when we look at a flower, we're looking at ourselves as much as we're looking at the flower. The flower we see is the object of our perception, and the truth is, you can't separate object and perception. We're looking at any object through the lens of our own consciousness, in the context of the stories that we assume to be unfolding. And I don't know if this is a a shortcoming so much as it's a given. It's not something to be fought so much as something to be noticed, to be mindful of. Because the more aware of it we become, the more we become awakened to ourselves, our habitual perceptions, our stories, complete with their own biases and fears and so on. And the more aware of this we are, the more we're able to look past them to see, to touch the true nature of the flower itself. This is true for each of us in every relationship and in every moment. And as we stare at this so-called triumphal entry scene, we see that it's just as true for them. On that day, they proved that they were so unaware of themselves, so unopen to, experiences, to experience Jesus' presence, that they miss it. And don't hear me wrong, when I say they missed it, or they missed the point, or they couldn't touch what was really happening, I don't just mean they missed out on knowing what was right. Like, they didn't have their facts straight. Because for too long, Christianity has been this exercise in knowing the right answers. But Christianity is a practice. It's the practice of connection to the spirit of love, of recognizing and letting go of oneself to be transformed by God in the way of Christ. What we know about Jesus is only as good as it serves that purpose. So when I say they miss it, or we miss it because of our unexamined perceptions and stories, what I mean is that they have put walls of their own making between themselves 
and Jesus' reality. And that they refuse to open themselves to that which has the power to give them life, to free them from their fears and teach them love. So, in this Palm Sunday portrait, let's scan the frame and be mindful of the particular and habitual ways they miss it. And in so doing, we may be able to shine the light of mindfulness on the ways that we miss it as well. First, of course, there's Rome. Barely perceptible in the scene, not directly mentioned, but again, making up the frame that surrounds the whole picture. The very backdrop of this scene is colored by the domination of the Roman Empire. And here's what you have to know about the way they color this story. Rome was built on a story that claimed peace is only possible through war, through the violent domination of an enemy. In other words, in their story, there is us and then there's them. And when they become a threat, we have to use violence to get them under control until there is peace. And when the other is beaten and subdued, then we are safe. And this doesn't really sound all that crazy, does it? It's a logic that was and still is largely just assumed to be true and deeply held. So deeply held, most of us don't bother trying to imagine if it could be different. And really, it's hard to argue with the fact that it seems to work. Rome was, as the United States is, at the end of the day, remarkably powerful and seemed to enjoy long stretches of peace. But that story, this perception of how the world has to work, it prevents Rome, and I suspect many of us today, from being open to see what Jesus is really trying to do. Because while Rome is sacrificing their citizens to the bloody god of war, they have little interest in the kinds of questions that Jesus' life poses. Questions like, are we really that different from the other, the ones we're supposed to be fighting? Does God treat them any differently or love them any less? Does the rain not fall on both of us? If we dehumanize and subdue everyone we deem to be a them, is it really peace? Or are we just temporarily slowing down the wheel of violence while they or some other group get ready to try to beat us? In short, does this domination story even work like we think it does. We've been turning this wheel of violence for a long time, and it doesn't seem to show any signs of stopping. Is a more real peace possibly available to us? More than just subdued conflict. But Rome isn't really interested in these questions. Most Americans aren't interested in these questions. They assume they already know the most effective way to peace. And so we don't care very much for the chance to touch actual peace. God. The nature of reality that ends war. And they miss it. And then back in the shaded corners of the frame, 
there are the Pharisees, those gospel villains. Arms crossed, their faces scowl in disapproval and fear. Rabbi, they rebuke him, get your disciples under control. Don't you hear what they're saying about you? Don't you know that that's blasphemy? On top of that, do you really want the Romans hearing them calling you king? And you know they missed the point because even Jesus pushes back against them. If they were silent, he says, the rocks themselves would cry out about what's going on today. For the Pharisees, their story is a story of uh, fear-based purification. If only we can get rid of everything that's bad, if only we can get rid of sin, and we can get rid of all of those who don't live up to our standards, then we'd have peace. So the Pharisees rule by shame and judgment of them, the others, the ones on the outside who dare question the laws that keep the peace. And again, this story's compelling. Because if we can just get rid of the ones who are causing us problems, then we will live in peace. Until, that is, all of them are gone. But we find that we have failed to solve the problems of our own hearts. And that for some reason we still suffer even once they are gone. The Pharisees saw Jesus through the lens of this story. He, they saw them, him as one of them, offensive to God and questioning the laws that bring peace. And there it is again, that same illusion of peace. They call it peace. But when their religious system fails to address the problems of their own ego, when it's set up to devour the poor for profit, when it causes suffering, isolation, and endless, life-destroying guilt by shaming everyone who can't possibly live up to their perfect standards. Is that really peace? Or does the conflict just become an invisible poison eating us from the inside? And so in the fear of corrupting their perfect religion, in their ego-driven failure to face their own issues, in their fear of losing control, in their fear of making God angry, God walks right in front of them. And they miss it. They look right at the flower, and all they can see is their own fear. And then as our eyes continue to move up the canvas, they settle on those glowing characters closest to Jesus, rolling out the red carpet with their own clothes. These were his disciples, his closest friends. They were the ones who lived their lives in the presence of embodied, unconditional love. And if we expect anyone to get it, it's them. They are the ones we emulate every year with our palm branches and our shouts of Hosanna. These folks are ready to accept Jesus as their king, the liberator of the people. To them, this is the people's triumphal entry. A piece of political theater against the flashy Roman triumphal entries, recognizing the one who's really powerful, the one God will use to liberate the oppressed and the downtrodden. When the disciples look at Jesus, they see Jesus the revolutionary. 
That is where even they miss the point. The story through which they see Jesus is this. We don't like the violent and oppressive ones in power. So we need to violently subdue and get rid of them, and then we'll be in power, and then we'll have peace. But there it is again, that peace that's not actually peace at all. The peace that's just one more turning of the wheel of violence and domination and counter-domination that just keeps rolling on and on and crushing the characters on either side. It just keeps taking an eye for an eye until the whole world stumbles around totally blind. It turns out they're playing the same human us and them ego game as Rome. And if there's any doubt, they prove this is the game they're playing a few days later when their king is arrested and humiliated and they scatter to the winds. Nowhere to be found. Because even from their vantage point near the top of the mountain, they missed it. But then there, in the center of the canvas, at the top of the mountain, we see the focal point riding on his donkey. His eyes glow with love for everyone around him. All over the picture, all those who are too certain of who he is to see him at all. Jesus is interested in peace, actual peace. Not just the Romans or the disciples' story of us beating them, but abolishing those dehumanizing categories of us and them entirely. Jesus is interested in teaching us to see God in them in such a way that confronts injustice with grace and stops the wheel of violence from rolling altogether. He's not interested in the Pharisees' story of purifying the world by pointing out the dust in everybody else's eye. He's interested in being the change that we want to see by focusing on removing the log from our own. Jesus is telling a different kind of story. One in which the main character is love, the divine, and all who are willing to open themselves to it are supporting characters. And day after day, he's been living out this story, this new story in the countryside, forming imaginations, breaking barriers, pushing back against oppressive religion, and now... On this march towards Jerusalem, he is putting his money where his mouth is. He so believes in this story of love that he is willing to carry it into the belly of the beast, to bring it into the most public and most political high-stakes arena. And this is where he intends to prove it. To prove that his story is wide enough to embrace the worst of the world's fear and suffering. And to hold it in such a way that loves a new humanity into being. A humanity that is capable of real and true and lasting peace. But in this tableau, on this festive portrait of the Mount of Olives... No one can see it quite yet. 
They're so caught up and so ignorant of their own stories, they miss it. And they're not the only ones. The Palm Sunday story is bigger than just that one day outside of Jerusalem. Because the frame expands to include every story of every person whose perceptions have ever kept them from seeing Jesus as he is. It embraces all whose stories have kept them from being open to hearing that new story that love is trying to tell. Even you and I. Now, I am not arguing for some kind of objective, modern, certain take on exactly who Jesus is and what he was doing. Love manifests differently in every eye and in every heart, and if each of us sees it a little bit differently, we're doing it right. But I am saying that when we do that vulnerable work of becoming aware of ourselves of our own perceptions, our own place in the world, the stories that we are telling about the nature of reality, whether it's dominion or purification or revolution or whatever, becoming aware of that which separates us from life eternal. When we do that, the flower that we are able to see will forever transform us. It will liberate us And it will teach us peace. So don't miss it.
Gathered around this table, we tell the story of the kind of life that brings peace. On the night Jesus was handed over, he gave the pledge that does away with death. He took the bread, and having given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take and eat, all of you, for this is my body, broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and pouring it, he said, This is the seal of the new covenant, my poured-out life. Take and drink, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare to come to the table, let us pray as Christ taught us. Our Father, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. of God, behold what you are and become what you receive. 